0: Hello and welcome to the Education Policy Podcast for England from Voice Community.
1: In this episode, what's going on with COVID? We look at the national funding formula reforms. We bring you the latest updates on early career teachers and their mentors, and we bust those performance management myths.
0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Education Policy Podcast for England. It is September. It is back to school. Lovely to have you all with us once again. Before we go any further, before we get into this properly, remember to follow us on social media, on Twitter at Community Union and at Voice the Union, on Facebook and on Instagram, Community Union, which is all one word, and to contact us at Policy at community-tu.org, like, share tell your friends about this podcast so let's get into this then martin for september first of all unfortunately we have to start once again with a a bit more of an update on the covid situation so i'm assuming this update we're we're doing today is going to be all about vaccination for children
1: absolutely vaccination has been all over the news And following its meeting on the 25th of September, Community Union's Voice Section Council has decided to support the vaccination of children aged 12 to 15 in order to keep you, our members, safe and to reduce the potential for disruption to children's learning, including the necessity to close schools. So officially then, what are we saying? We've sought clarification around the roles of schools and staff and, and the administration and all of that. We're aware that schools have been receiving letters that state that the head teachers could be liable. We want to confirm that this is completely and utterly not the case. The administration of vaccines will be undertaken by trained teams from the School Age Immunisation Service. And although schools will host these services, they are not responsible for securing parental or child consent and therefore legal accountability remains with the Department for Health and Social Care and the school aged immunisation service, not with the school.
0: So is it essentially a lot like other vaccinations that already happen in schools? It's
1: exactly like other vaccinations that happen in schools, for example, the HPV or diphtheria, tetanus and polio vaccinations.
0: So what should staff do? Our our members who are listening to us discuss this now, what what are they likely to be asked to do and what should they do?
1: So teachers, support staff, they should not be involved in the vaccination programme directly. However, it is reasonable to be asked to undertake your normal duties, such as the supervision of children. It's reasonable for you to be asked to supervise a line-up of pupils waiting to be vaccinated. And should you be asked to supervise children off-site, if that's where the vaccinations are taking place, this is also reasonable, as all of those duties fall within the normal remit of school staff. So basically, what we're saying is teaching and support staff can be asked to do their normal duties, which would include supervision of pupils during the school day.
0: Now, I know, having seen some myself, that there are, of course, some um, anti-vaccination protesters. Um, I don't know necessarily any of them are outside of schools at the moment, but if they were, what should our members do?
1: If there was to be any disruption outside or around the site as a result of the vaccination programme, it's really important that members do not do anything that would put themselves or their pupils in danger. They should not engage with the protesters. Should members find themselves unable to access their workplace, they must telephone their employer. So phone your head teacher. Let them know that you can't get onto site because of the protesters. Any violence, threatening, intimidating behaviour, we recommend that this is immediately reported to the police because this is a police matter.
0: Yeah, and I would really, really hope that it doesn't come to that, but uh, perhaps it was worth just saying that. Um, So the the bottom line then, I suppose, is that um, in the teacher standards, it does say that, Uh, it's important that school staff observe proper boundaries, show tolerance of and respect for the rights of others. Is that relevant here in terms of people's choices on being
1: vaccinated and not? That is absolutely the case here. We would not expect anybody to be treated differently because they chose to or chose not to be vaccinated. But it's Absolutely important that, as the teacher standards say, teachers who are in a position of trust do not express their personal beliefs in a way which exploits pupils' vulnerabilities. Therefore, bottom line, we advise members not to share their views about vaccinations with their pupils at all.
0: Okay, thank you for all that, Martin. Um, hopefully, we don't have to talk too much in the future. I'm looking forward to a podcast where we don't have to mention COVID, uh, but that is at least the vaccines update. Done. <laughs> Moving on then, Martin, to the National Funding Formula. Now, we as a union have been asked to respond to some reforms on the National Funding Formula. Before we get into what those reforms are, what is the National Funding Formula?
1: Yeah, the National Funding Formula is a system devised by the government to direct funding into schools – Um, Currently, funding in schools comes from one of two sources. If your school is a local authority-maintained school, that funding comes from the government into the local authority, and the local authority then diverts that funding to its schools. Uh, Academies and free schools, however, are funded directly from the government. Uh, What the government wants to do is to make the system more consistent across the whole of England so that schools, uh, whether they are directly um, funded by government or whether they are funded through the local authority, will receive the same amounts of money. On the surface, that sounds like a great idea. But as always, there are other issues that need to be considered as well.
0: So we're responding to a government request for, for our input into this. Is that basically about right?
1: Yes, so we are being consulted um, and we will complete what we call an official response. And this is on behalf of all of our members. So we asked members about issues regarding funding as part of the survey that we did that fed into our future of education report. And so we will be using that information from our members to uh, advise us and to influence the uh, response that we make.
0: Okay, so in a nutshell... I keep, feel like I keep saying that in a nutshell, but I guess succinctly for the podcast. Um, what are we saying about these reforms? What are we as voice saying?
1: An official response is an opportunity for us to engage with the department. And over the last few weeks, there have been a series of informal meetings where we've been able to share some of our opinions and understand a little bit more about the thinking behind the questions within the consultation But as you said, succinctly, what are we asking for? We're asking for there to be a base level of funding which goes into every school. But we're also asking for there to be flexibilities. We're asking for there to be flexibilities that cover things like rural schools and the sparsity factors that go with being a small school in a small community. We're asking for flexibilities for those schools that have got PFI buildings and therefore need additional funding. We're asking for flexibility around schools which have got particularly aged buildings. Some schools are still teaching in Victorian period buildings and whilst they look beautiful, come winter they can be very drafty and very cold. So we're asking for flexibility around the funding so that maintenance costs can be covered. We're asking for flexibility around where schools have got falling or rising rolls.
0: Wow, Okay. thank you. Uh, And is there anything else that our members have been saying?
1: Yes. I mean, we noted a lot of these things in our Future of Education report, which is available on both the Voice and Community Union websites. We've said that we would like lagged funding to be investigated to see if it is actually the best system for funding schools. What's lagged funding? So lagged funding is where the school gets the funding based on the previous census. The school census is taken in October And for academies and free schools, they then get that settlement the following January and maintained schools then get that settlement in the following April. We'd like to see if that is truly the best system of funding schools or maybe we need a system which is more reactive to change because we have seen during the pandemic that schools have had to be much more reactive with their funding particularly where people have lost their jobs and children have fallen into requiring free school meals for example which schools have had to find funding for which they hadn't previously needed and so therefore could have left schools in financial difficulties and of course on top of all of that SEND funding will always be needed and will need to be reactive to the needs of the pupils.
0: So our response on this is going to be submitted this week uh, as we're recording the podcast on the 30th of September. When will we expect you know, any further developments on this?
1: Once uh, we submit our official response and other unions and interested parties submit their responses, there is then a period of time when the government considers those responses I imagine this information will all feed in to the government spending review, so we're not looking to hear anything back until November at the earliest.
0: So moving into the section of the podcast all about the working life of our members and our listeners, and this month we're looking at ECTs and mentors. So ECTs are early career teachers and it's the something that's sort of replacing NQTs. So from September 2021, induction for teachers joining the profession will be extended to two years and underpinned by the ECF.
1: The Early Career Framework.
0: And that will provide them with a structured programme of development, support and professional dialogue. So one of the things these reforms mean is that each ECT will have a dedicated mentor. Now, I was an NQT mentor, and of course I had a mentor, but was that not something that was, you, you had to happen before?
1: So previously, although having a mentor was recommended, it was never actually written into legislation. This time, within the early career framework, having a mentor is a requirement of a school hosting an early career teacher. And... Uh, We think that's going to be a really good thing. Not only does it mean that you've got someone there to support you, to learn from, it also means that you've got dedicated meeting time to discuss the issues. So um, having a mentor is going to be, hopefully, a game-changing factor in uh, early career training.
0: So the reforms also mean that ECT's early career teachers will have a reduced timetable for the first two years of teaching rather than just one following qualification – the idea being that this gives them the time, support they need to focus on their professional development um, and to lay the foundations for a, you know, a, 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 a good career. Will mentors also have any kind of reduced timetable?
1: Yes, so the mentor will have to have the ability and sufficient time to carry out their role. So mentors will have to be trained and mentors will have to be released from timetable in order to meet with their mentees. Um, you mentioned that the early career teachers will have additional non-contact time. That's true. So in addition to the 10% PPA time, early career teachers will get an additional 10% PPA time in their first year and 5% PPA time in their second year. So they'll have 20% time off timetable in year one and 15% time off timetable in year two moving into the regular 10% PPA time in year three. In fact, we think this is such a good idea that we've been pushing for all teachers to be given more PPA time, uh, and we're hoping that this will give us some real evidence to support that request. Yeah,
0: absolutely. It would have been uh, really important to me when I was still teaching to have a little bit more time. So as we've just said, um, the schools must check that the mentor has the ability and sufficient time to carry out their role Um, sufficient time to facilitate the support they provide to early career teachers uh, during their induction now there are three paths uh, a school can follow Um, can you can you enlighten us as to what those are
1: yeah so there are three pathways schools can choose to follow a full induction program which is where a funded provider offers training uh, and the school really is just the host or schools can opt for a core induction program, which is where they draw on the content of these commercial professional development programs, or they can develop their own bespoke induction program and deliver that based entirely on the early career framework. All three are perfectly acceptable pathways and come with different levels of support and different levels of funding. The only requirement is that schools must offer one of these pathways to early career teachers.
0: So it could be that sort of an outside agency, an outside body comes in and helps a school, or is that that, that first one you're talking about there? Yeah, that's, funded provider. That's
1: absolutely, and and that's kind of what happens in lots of local authorities now, where they. Uh, have meeting days where all of the NQTs meet and do core training um, away from the school. So this is a system which is already reasonably well established, but now it's being written into the guidance. So I assume that
0: Ofsted will look at this during their inspections in some way.
1: Yeah, Ofsted will have a role in quality assuring the delivery of full induction provider programmes. They'll also be looking at the training that is offered to early career teachers and mentors. And obviously, if they come to observe a school during um, the early career framework and the school is offering a school based programme, then that will be inspected as normal.
0: So what does this mean, Martin, for people working in schools on the ground at the moment then?
1: If you are a normal teacher, you have the opportunity now to be a mentor. And with the opportunity to become a mentor is the opportunity for training to be a mentor, which obviously is going to help people to reflect on their practice, look at what they can do better, and also to enthuse and support the next generation of teachers mentors are going to be working collaborative with early career teachers so they'll they'll learn stuff that the early career teachers are developing in, from their university courses. They'll also be able to involve other colleagues um, in, in supporting those trainees and also they will benefit from the additional time where they get to observe and meet with the early career teachers. Um, so all in all, being a mentor sounds like quite a good thing and at least this time there is training and funding available for schools to actually make it work. So in
0: general we are relatively happy with these with this new arrangement. There are aspects of it I know that we're a little bit dubious about.
1: I think with any change there are always aspects that will need to be looked at more carefully. There are aspects of it that we will only really know about once they have Uh, taken place and we are able to look back at these things sort of retrospectively.
0: And where should um, any of our members and listeners who need a bit of help understanding this go for more information?
1: Information on the early career framework is available on .gov.uk or of course our members can look on our website for our official responses regarding the early career framework. Or, of course, they can continue to listen to our podcasts and we'll keep bringing them updates as soon as we find out more. I think that's a really good option.
0: So, finally, for this month's edition of the Education Policy Podcast, we are on to Mythbusters. Let me set the scene for you, Martin, okay? And let me set the scene for you this month on the super exciting subject of performance management and appraisal. Wow. Okay. Now, believe it or not, this podcast is not simply thrown together. We do do a little bit of planning. And the reason why we have chosen to do this this month is because often in schools and education environments, a performance management cycle runs from October to October. Most businesses run over a 12-month cycle. and Performance management planning and reviews for teachers must be completed by the 31st of October each year, which probably explains why it runs from October to October. Employees should have a clear time frame for completing the process, and although they may begin the annual cycle at different times, most of them begin in October. So, here is the myth for this month. A teacher, or anybody else, must achieve all of their targets to pass their performance management.
1: Interesting. Not true. And the reason it's not true is that circumstances across the year can change. And if those circumstances change, those performance management targets should change to match the different circumstances. But let's look at this in a little bit more detail. At the moment, we know that COVID continues to affect staff's abilities to meet their targets, particularly where targets have had some data aspect to them um, and particularly where that data aspect has been related to exams, for example. Because exams didn't happen, The data was different to that which might have been predicted, which may have affected a staff's ability to meet their target. To be honest, we would always recommend and even the Department for Education's making data work guidance recommends that hard data should never be used to set targets or to judge whether someone has met their targets simply because it on its own is not reliable enough. So that's to do with data, but there are a whole host of other reasons why you haven't met one target. You should not be prevented from successfully completing your appraisal.
0: So what what would those reasons be? Could one, for example, be that you were off ill for a period of time?
1: Absolutely. So absence through illness or maternity leave could be a reason for you not achieving all of your targets. Similarly, school closure periods, as we have seen, would be another reason. Of course, some people might still be working towards a target at the time that the appraisal meetings take place. And so they are on the way to achieving that target. But perhaps it hasn't been fully achieved at this point. And of course, in those circumstances, it's entirely reasonable to say, look, you know, I am working towards this. The progress is looking good, but the target has not been met yet. And so it's important, you know, in those circumstances to allow that target to be carried over into a future year and assessed under the new set of uh, appraisal targets.
0: So it's the middle of the year, right? Your performance management um, cycle started in October. It's February half term. Should you be having sort of meetings along the way, conversations happening? Absolutely.
1: So targets need to be fair and they need to be achievable. And if along the way there are any issues which arise which stop those targets being fair or mean that they are unachievable, you need to be having a conversation with your line manager. There should be no surprises by the time of the review meeting. So we would expect if there are any issues with your performance that feedback should indicate that in a timely manner so that you are able to put that right or maybe access support in order for you to be able to put that right.
0: And that goes both ways, doesn't it? You know, if you realise that there are issues um, with uh, reaching some target or reaching some performance indicator along the way, you should be raising that with your line manager or whoever is um, completing your performance management with you. But equally, should your your line manager realise that there are concerns in some way, you should have the opportunity to discuss those and they should bring them to you and raise them as time goes on, not wait until that last minute and go, oh, yeah, there's problems and you've not passed.
1: And of course, this actually goes right back to the beginning, to the target setting time itself, because it's important as a staff member that you have some input in establishing what those targets are. They should be targets which support you as a worker as well as the school as an establishment.
0: It's important, isn't it, to have had... um significant input into the uh, review, the performance review, it should not be a report to which you've not contributed or a report that you're unhappy about.
1: Absolutely. It's important at any of the interim review meetings, but especially important at the final review meeting that you are able to have your say. It is not necessary to meet all targets in order to pass the performance management as long as your performance has not fallen beneath the minimum expected of the teacher standards. It does not follow, if you have failed to meet your appraisal targets, that your performance as a teacher or as a support staff is automatically going to lead to capability. As I said, the bare minimum for teachers is that they meet the teacher standards. And even if they've failed their appraisal targets, that doesn't mean that they are automatically failing as a teacher. And failure does not mean that you should go on to capability. It could, but it doesn't automatically mean that.
0: Two questions, or two two points perhaps. First question to you is, the the all-important one, I suppose, for most people, what really a lot of this kind of boils down to. Do you have to pass all targets in order to get more money to move up the ladder?
1: Basically, no. You can be recommended for a pay rise, even if you have not met all of your appraisal targets, as long as you can show that you have either met some of them or are working towards meeting those targets. It all depends on the different circumstances. Okay, and
0: finally, threshold.
1: It exists, it doesn't exist. What
0: people have to do to go through threshold, move from, and by which threshold I mean, move from uh, the main scale, um, a teacher's pay scale, to the upper pay scale, That seems to vary now in different schools and some people aren't really given the opportunity to do it.
1: All the school teachers paying conditions document says is that teachers should have to apply. Um, Now at the most basic level that is to write perhaps in an email to your head teacher and say that you wish to be considered for movement from main scale six onto the upper pay scale. If you are planning that then you're appraiser should know this in advance. They should know that you're already at main scale six and therefore it might be a possibility that you might want to consider going up onto the upper pay scale and therefore meeting your appraisal targets should be all the evidence that you need in order to make that transition from main scale to upper pay scale. There should be no further bureaucracy that is necessary we do know that some local authority schools, some academies and some trusts are demanding full application forms. There is nothing in the school teachers' paying conditions document which requires that. That is a local arrangement.
0: So it perhaps is important to say to our, our listeners, check. Check with your school, check with your local authority, whoever it is you would need to check with, as to what the arrangements are for moving from the main scale to the upper pay scale in your local region you know if it is the case that they want an application it may be something you can explain to them is not necessary but in the, it, you should you should probably check and make sure you're fully aware of what the uh, needs are in your school
1: and don't forget. If there are any issues, if you are declined pay progression or if you're refused to be moved up onto the upper pay scale, you do have the right to appeal against that. Again, check your local arrangements, check your school's pay policy to find out exactly what it is that you need to do, what evidence you need to gather in order to make that appeal. So I think that
0: is probably another myth busted. BOOM! It only remains for us to say uh, thank you once again uh, for listening. Don't forget, as I've mentioned in previous episodes, we have a whole host of CPD and training. Free CPD courses that are available to community members, which all voice members are, working in education. These courses would have cost you anywhere between 60 and £100, pounds, but as your members, they are free. And to give you a flavour of some of the ones we have on offer, we have uh, Lesson Planning for Teachers Certification, Nursery Assistant Certification, Positive Handling in School Certification, SEND Certification, Teaching Adults to Read Certification, Teaching Phonics, Teaching Phonics Level 2, Key Stages of the National Curriculum, a whole host that you can dig into, have a look at and use to further your professional development. To find any and all of these courses, all you need to do is access the member area of the community website Using your uh, details, if you've not set an account up yet, you can do that really easily. And if you have any problems, do contact us on the usual details. And once more, finally, as I said at the start, don't forget, follow us on social media, on Twitter, Martin. At Community Union and at Voice The Union. On Facebook and Instagram. Community Union, that's all one word, Community Union. And to contact Martin and I directly about anything to do with this podcast or about education policy, you email us at dot tuorg And don't forget to like, share,
1: subscribe, comment, and tell all your friends and family about it. And we'll see you again on another Education Policy podcast.